can we decipher those messages in our body and can we um, give them a name and can we give them can we recognize their signpost to a particular emotion and then can we actually put all of that in any kind of words so we can share it with somebody else so i think a lot of those very basic skills the more we practice those skills of this feeling in my body is an indicator of this emotion and and the reframing that might need to go around that needs to happen all of the time so that when we do get into these pointy ends these crises we've got the language to explain to ourselves and to somebody else what's actually happening hi folks i'm dan dworkis and this is the emergency mind podcast a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure you're about to hear the second part of our conversation between Dr. Andrea Austin and Sheree Johnson, episode 48B, and you are in for a treat. It is just really, really cool. There's a ton of stuff in here about mastering yourself both as a human and as an individual that really has to perform under pressure. Um, there's a lot of stuff that fits really all parts of our cycle of prepare, perform, recover, and evolve. If you haven't listened to the first part, I'd recommend going back and taking a listen at least to the beginning where Dr. Austin um, really introduces Sheree Johnson, or you can check out Sheree Johnson's website at shereejohnson.com.au. That's S-H-A-R-E-E-J-O-H-N-S-O-N.com.au. Before we jump into the episode, I have, as it were, a favor to ask, which is that if you like what you're hearing here on the podcast, please help us get the word out. And you can do that either by sharing the podcast, by leaving a review, or by going to check out our book, which is called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure. You can find that at emergencymind.com book uh, at Amazon or basically at any large independent bookstore. And if you do already have a copy, please consider leaving a review. That's a huge help and really helps us get the word out about what we're doing here. All right, all that said, let's jump into this episode. I hope you enjoy. Hi, this is Andrea Austin, co-host of The Emergency Mind. I'm really excited to bring you part two of my interview with Cherie Johnson. Cherie is a psychologist and physician coach. She lives and works in Australia. In part two, we're going to dig into what's the difference between compassion and empathy and why this is a really important distinction when we consider burnout. And we'll also talk about coaching and how you can pick the right coach, make sure they're of a reputable background, and how coaching can improve your performance. Thinking back to these doctors, especially here in the United States that are struggling so much right now, there's a concept you and I had discussed earlier about empathy versus sympathy. And I'm wondering if you could flesh that out for people and give them some tangible take-homes because, you know, I had shared with you that I've had periods of my career where I've had just extreme, almost like pain um, related to the empathy that I'm having. And I think that progressed into an overcompensation of numbing or shutting down. So I know that's a huge topic and we could do a whole episode on it, but when you have physicians right now that want to be empathetic, but they're feeling drained, what may be going on there from a psychological perspective? Well, the neuroscience, the current, the recent neuroscience, and Tanya Singer is the main researcher for anyone who feels like they want to uh, look at the research a bit more. Um, the neurological inquiry says that uh, our 
empathy networks, the activation of our, our neurological pathways for empathy um, are our pain networks. And so if there's enough, if you're empathic enough, if you're at the extreme, you know, fully empathizing and fully engaged with a person, looking at the world through their lens, really seeking to understand what life looks like from, from their perspective, then your pain networks are activated in your brain. So they're in pain, you're in pain, and at the extreme, we can't determine if it's our pain or their pain anymore. It's the same network that's activated. So this is, this is the space of emotional burden, empathic fatigue, and it is literally very painful. Uh, when we're in uh, compassion, I think the, the contrast we were talking about was empathy and compassion. So when we are experiencing compassion, we activate our neurological pathways for reward. So we um, uh, have dopamine in our system, along with a number of other chemicals, perhaps some oxytocin. Uh, so we have our reward systems activated neurologically. And we want that again, in the same way that if we have a cup of coffee, we wanna have another cup of coffee because it feels good. <laughs> so we're activating our reward systems and it's a much more sustainable process. Empathy, of course, is a part of compassion. I, I, the easiest way to define compassion for me, and we can have, as you say, a much bigger conversation, but uh, is empathy plus action. So the, the, the difference between empathy and compassion is this active part, this activation, this attempt to relieve suffering. So compassion is about sitting with suffering, trying to relieve suffering. So um, we, if you like, we're taking it a step further than the empathy. We're not just understanding. We're not just support, you know, we're not just being in that understanding space. We're seeking to do something that is of value in terms of relieving the suffering. Now, if I was looking at you as a fly on the wall from the outside and you were listening intently to somebody speaking to you, I can't tell from the outside if you're being empathic or compassionate. I don't know. It might look exactly the same. Deep listening looks exactly the same. But internally, if you're in empathy and you're in pain, you might be saying, well, what's the point of this? I can't do anything. There's no options for this person. You know, we're often very dismissive of our listening. We say things like, oh, I couldn't do much. All I did was listen and sort of throw it away as if it was nothing. If we're in compassion, we're saying things more like, I might be the first person who's sat, been able to sit with this person, with this trauma. This is really difficult. We're leaning in, we're actively, intentionally staying with and acknowledging that that has value, that that's of use, that, that it's not nothing, it's something. Uh, and so in this space, in this um, recognition internally that, that listening is useful, we have much more chance of activating our compassion, that we feel active in the process. So I think that um, there's a lot more to learn. I think it's, you know, it's pretty cutting edge, some of this research in terms of, you know, looking inside brains and seeing where the activity is and then um, analysing, well, what does that activity mean in terms of behaviour? There are some big steps between, you know, what we see on an MRI, functional MRI and, and what we actually see in a person's experience. But certainly there's some very interesting work around empathy activating pain and compassion activating reward and the idea that if we're act activating our reward system, we have some sustainability in that. It's something that is renewable and continual and infinite. So I think that this idea of compassion fatigue, which we're all familiar with in health, is a misnomer. We really need to start naming that properly uh, and more accurately as we learn about the science. So for me, I would be saying empathy fatigue. I think that there's great scope for compassion to help us be well individually and collectively. I think there's a lot of 
forward movement we can make in terms of care and kindness and well-being understanding more about compassion in saying all of that i don't want to in any way minimize this experience of what i'm calling empathy fatigue it's uh, absolutely real uh, and we can see that neurologically in, in a person's experience now i think that's one of the most mind-blowing concepts that i've heard and i just shared it last night with a mentee, a junior doctor that was having her first rotation in the intensive care unit and had just had such an intense day and we debriefed it and she thought this idea was really helpful and, and wished she had learned about it sooner. And I, I'm very excited that we're sharing this with our audience and hopefully can disseminate this more. So I want to turn to a more specific scenario in which a physician has a traumatic case and what exactly that trauma could be could vary, but the typical things that cause really intense responses are child deaths. And it wasn't my case, but I was aware of a very horrific case that happened in my emergency department yesterday and I saw the impact on the physicians. And I was glad to hear that there was a physician trained in peer support that was coming down to do the debrief with them. But I also was curious about how that debrief would go and how well-trained the person was. You know, I've read some literature that there can be potential psychological harm if the person is not well-trained in doing these debriefs. I know it's a huge topic, but maybe you could hit on what somebody can do personally and then what you would suggest if you were advising a hospital system um, or an emergency department on what they should really be doing to support people through these really intense experiences. Yeah, so uh, everything has a disclaimer, doesn't it? Again, every situation is different. So um, if people listening can, you know, hold that, that we're talking generally. So um, I think that uh, peer support model has a lot of support for it. And I think there's a lot of good things that come out of peer support. We, we certainly don't debrief in the way we used to. You know, we used to have critical incident stress management. We'd have everybody in the room who was even in the building kind of thing. And we learned that that was actually traumatizing for a lot of people who didn't need uh, all of the details. One of the things we know about um, traumatic events, and whether it be natural disaster or a child death, is that um, you know most people integrate that experience successfully into their life understanding in their life experience so that's the first thing I think to have some confidence that most of the time we can integrate these experiences into our understanding of the world and um, physicians who are expecting to do this kind of work are primed in some ways they know they're going to meet grief and distress and and so on and so there's some some expectation stuff already around that in the circumstance you're talking about, I think the most important uh, skill that people have is the capacity to ask for help. And that's a, a big missing skill for many doctors. So being able to say, I know we've had the debrief or I know um, I'm, I'm having days off now or whatever, but I still actually need some more help. And that doesn't have to be of the system. It can be of our private support networks, but that we need to be able to say out loud I need some help. And there's such strong um, cultural 
stories in health, in, in medicine around don't ever show that you're weak, don't ever show that you can't cope. Uh, and it's a huge problem because, um, you know, as we were talking earlier, doctors are humans first. And this expectation that you can be in these incredibly intense, distressing, you know, high emotion circumstances uh, with multiple people, you know, the, the child themselves, their siblings, their parents, the other uh, health professionals involved, uh, and just be able to somehow hold that and walk away is you know, unrealistic. So, so the, the most important skill from my point of view is to be able to voice, to say out loud, this has really got me. I can't shake it. I'm not okay. I need some help. I need to talk some more. Or the talking we've done isn't enough. Or this um, internal recognition about where we are. So I think um, compartmentalizing and depersonalizing are very important skills. I think that we want to think about these things as a toolbox where we've got all of those skills. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't compartmentalize in the short and the short immediate term. Compartmentalizing an experience like that is pretty important skill to be able to turn around and face the next patient we have to be able to hold that or put that experience somewhere depending on the circumstance we might want to say right now I actually can't see that next patient I'm going to I'm going to go over here and sit by myself or I'm going to go home we don't ordinarily want a person who's experienced a trauma like that to go home in the workplace we'd rather them stay in the workplace where someone can see them and look after them uh, there are issues about how they're going to get home, who's at home and so on. So staying in the workplace is often the best place for a person to stay when there's been a traumatic event, um, but not necessarily at the front line doing the work. So it's a, it's a micro version of what we began our conversation talking about when we were talking about intensity and rest cycle. The other skills are around, um, you know, clarity of mind, having that personal awareness to understand if we are able to concentrate or not, or if we are, if our equilibrium is disturbed too much that we can't actually provide good care to the next person. Um, our emotional regulation. So can I give a name to my emotion that I'm having? So very often when we ask adults to name their emotions, they can only name five or six, you know, happy, sad, angry, excited, frustrated, and then they run out of words for their experience. So I think there's a lot of foundational groundwork that needs to go on all the time before there are any traumatic events around, you know, sensitivity to our body. Does that, you know, not in my stomach represent, you know, I'm, I'm going to be sick I'm nauseous or is it I'm really excited or and you know it's nervous kind of butterflies or is it you know that I actually there's some real dissonance here that I can't hold I'm you know there's a moral injury thing happening here that's making me very uncomfortable can we decipher those messages in our body and can we um, give them a name and can we give them can we recognize their signpost to a particular emotion and then can we actually put all of that in any kind of words so we can share it with somebody else so I think a lot of those very basic skills, the more we practice those skills of this feeling in my body is an indicator of this emotion and, and the reframing that might need to go around that needs to happen all of the time. So that when we do get into these pointy ends, these crises, we've got the language to explain to ourselves and to somebody else what's actually happening. I think that's so profound and it really goes to what we've been talking about all along is that we need this revolution in medicine because what we're actually taught very early on is to ignore our body cues. You know, I remember 
I was probably a fourth year resident before I decided that it was okay to go to the bathroom during a shift. And it was okay to step off for Mm -hmm. a few minutes and eat something. So what that ended up doing, and I realized it on the back end, is I had completely learned to ignore my body. And when I was getting signals that I was actually really stressed or, you know, really anxious or really did need to like have a minute to collect myself, I couldn't even recognize it until it had gotten to a really advanced point. I know you do some foundational work with medical students and I'm wondering, because we've had this discussion before offline that medical students are so excited there. They don't really see this risk of burnout when I'm working with a medical student. And when you're teaching them, what are you trying to instill in them? Or what are some foundational steps for when they're in this early stage where they can't even imagine uh, not being excited to go in and for a shift? I don't know the answer to this, Andrea. I've been in conversation with one of our um, associate professors at one of our universities here too in, in Victoria about this exact problem. How do we, you know, there's something lovely about youth, which is, you know, that that's not going to be a problem for me. And, uh, you know, uh, this sort of arrogance of youth, I'm, you know, I'm quite in awe of it. I kind of miss that part of my (laughs) life. Such a beautiful thing. We don't want to kind of, you know, knock that off or kill that. We want that attitude actually is what brings a lot of people to medicine and to be able to do this delay, you know, such a long delay in being able to work as a consultant in a hospital. So many years of training, you know, these young people have to be very good at delayed gratification. So how do we help them see that and have insight to that which they haven't experienced yet? I don't know. It's a very big question. One of the powerful ways, I think, is to bring, um, you know, people that these young doctors, these training doctors and medical students would look up to and look towards who share their stories very openly. I mean, culture comes from storytelling. Um, you know, the way we do things around here is by listening to the stories. You know, if I, if, if I get um, intimidated or humiliated because I don't know the answer to something and then I, um, you know, cry or look like I can't cope and somebody tells me, well, maybe you're not cut out for medicine, um, then I learn implicitly to harden up and I learn to not say, that it's not safe to say I don't know the answer or I'm not sure or I need some help so I think that we need this sort of counter education that counters the hidden curriculum where doctors tell their stories of burnout and tell their stories of distress and um, that the doctors who are in mentor mentoring positions and supervisory positions um, share some other stories besides the harden up story the strong threads in medicine are you know stoicism and stoicism has a lot to offer because it doesn't say don't have any emotions it says learn to manage your emotions and so I think we make a mistake when we talk about you know be stoic as if that's you know be a rock and never show any emotion what that really means is let's learn how to manage our emotions so I think we need to bring a bit more honesty into this idea of stoicism. But medicine runs on stoicism, perfectionism, competition, uh, harden up. To me, it seems like they're the kind of key qualities of the culture so far or in recent decades. So from my outsider's view, I think that we can add um, compassion, 
uh, presence, awareness, mindfulness, all those things that I'm biased towards as ways of showing it, developing a different culture. And that's going to mean experienced doctors being vulnerable in front of junior doctors. And that's very counter to what they've learned. So it's going to take us some time, I think, to help our mid-career doctors, perhaps maybe not our very experienced senior doctors might be too hard to ask them to shift their position after you know five or six decades of of being in a particular culture but perhaps our mid-career doctors can be saying do you know what this stuff doesn't really work for me I'm, I'm sick of being competitive and hard <laughs> let me tell you about this really awful thing that happened to me um, and you know how challenging it was no adults like to be vulnerable it's not easy work but I think this storytelling coming to coming into med school and telling our stories, coming on retreat and telling our stories of when things were difficult and challenging and how important the other people around us were in helping us to be well. I think that can make a difference. So I have to dig just a little deeper on the stoicism that you brought up because uh, the founder of this podcast, Dan Dorcas, is a huge fan of stoicism. And we use a lot of those concepts on the emergency mind. But lately, I've been wanting to have this debate with Dan that sometimes I feel that stoicism is telling me not to have a feeling. And I've really gotten into Susan David's work on emotional agility and that it's very important to, to acknowledge what I'm feeling, to name it, and then figure out a strategy for what I'm going to do with that. And so are you saying that stoicism you can do that with, with stoicism, because that's what I'm really struggling with right now. That's my understanding. And I don't claim to claim to be a, um, you know, philosophy scholar, but I think that um, stoicism says, you know, it talks about virtue and talks about managing emotion. And I don't think that, and sometimes resilience is portrayed like that too. This idea of, you know, we'll, we'll be resilient. We'll be, we'll be able to just keep getting up. We'll just keep getting up no matter what happens. We'll just keep getting up. So I think that the, the gift of mindfulness is that you can be aware and tune in and pay attention. So you can be aware of what's happening and choose what you pay attention to. So in that, in that frame, you would be aware, for instance, that you, um, I don't know, maybe you feel constricted in your, in your voice and you feel, you know, like you can't speak, you can't challenge some, some decision that's been made, which is a junior doctor's constant experience. You know, the, they give the information to the consultant, the consultant says, no, we're not doing that. Or the consultant makes a decision and the, and the uh, junior doctor wants to ask a question or is concerned about some part, but doesn't ask the question because they don't want to be thought of as stupid or weak or in some way humiliated and so they can't speak now there might be a very physical response to that of tightening in the chest or a tightening of the jaw or a you know lump in your throat and being able to name that and say to yourself you know something like fear is here or anxious is here not I'm anxious but anxious is here gives you a, a way to diffuse the feeling a little bit gives you a a moment of detachment you can actually look at it rather than from it and you 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 start to engage your prefrontal cortex so it's not all limbic if you like it's not all emotional but you're having this kind of conversation with yourself where you name it to tame it um, if you're interested Susan David's work's fantastic and you can also look at Stephen Hayes's work around acceptance and commitment uh, training or therapy so we name it to tame it. We diffuse the, the experience by noticing I've got this lump in my throat. Oh, fear is here. 
yes, it's because I don't want to ask a question. And, and now we're in our prefrontal cortex. So we're still having the emotion, the emotion's still there, but we're also engaging our thinking mind as well. Both are present. You know, I'm, I'm emotional and I'm uh, managing the emotion. I'm, I'm regulating myself. I'm making a conscious choice. And we can't go along a whole day of 12 or 14 hour shift in emergency you know, doing this internal conversation every second, obviously. Um, but there might be some seminal moments. There might be one or two or three times through the day where you are, you are able to feel some strong emotion or some, some posture shift, some physical shift, where you're able to recognise what it is, that you then can choose. You, you may not do anything with it. You might just name it. It tames it in the sense that you you ground, you feel your feet on the floor and you can keep going on to the next thing. And other times you might say, I actually need to take that up. I want to, in my next supervision time or my next teaching time or whatever, I want to say, when there's this kind of problem, what's the role of the junior doctor? Can the junior doctor question that decision and have a conversation about it? So it's not it's not kind of one response fits all, but the way that we're trying to get our cognitive get our prefrontal cortex back online in those circumstances is by giving the emotion a name. And so I think this that's that's very much in line with stoicism. It's it's not about I don't have any emotions or I can never express any emotions. It's about being intelligent and astute about our emotions, you know, sort of a bit more clever about how we respond to them. They're going to happen. Right? It's the nature of human. It's a fallacy to pretend that we can turn them off or ignore them or detach from them. Much better to turn towards them, lean in towards them, learn about what they mean and learn about what's, what's my individual effective response when I have this body signaling this emotion, what's useful for me. And I've learned that through curiosity and experience and, and experimenting and testing, saying, you know, I'm a resolute and... Uh, resilient and I can just keep getting back up and look at me so stoic and hard and controlled there's no learning in that. that that's just a kind of one recipe fits all there's no learning to be had in that there's no you know true resilience is falling down assessing the situation adjusting adapting putting the learning into for next time standing back up going forward with new capacity new understanding new skill it's not just fall down, stand up, fall down, stand up. Wow. There's just so much there. And I think that's a lot for our listeners to ponder. And we'll definitely put the other references that you suggested in there. Because I do think this is really important for people to spend some time on learning how to respond to their body and more introspection and developing some strategies for these difficult emotions and, you know, to use again, Susan David's terms, um, you know, reflecting on if you're more of a bottler or a brooder and it all comes out. I mean, that's what I'm learning. And, you know, there's, uh, I think a really powerful book. I haven't read it yet, but, um, the body keeps a score this idea that all of these little traumas, big traumas are inside of us and we have to learn to recognize them and manage them. We always like to end the podcast with a challenge to our listeners. What would you ask our listeners to do? Read Bessel van der Kolk's book that you just suggested. <laughs> no, I think um, the thing I would recommend for people to do is to choose one thing and work on one thing. So I'll say now three or four things, but 
I'd, I would invite people to choose one thing that they're really conscious of, that they actively practice, and that they tell other people that they're practicing. So uh, the three key things I would love for all health professionals to be able to do is to manage their mind really well. So to do some mind training and the best way to do that is mindfulness training. And if you don't like the word mindfulness, if that's a problem for you, call it presence training, call it attention training, call it focus training, call it you know awareness training. But really, we want to learn to manage our minds much more effectively. There's a lot we can do in that space. The second one is the emotional regulation that we've been talking about just now. So be literate about your emotions. Know what this body feeling is. Give it, be able to give it an emotion name. And to not shy away from that, to turn in towards your emotions. Give them a name. Learn about them. Be curious about them. They're such powerful pieces of data. I don't think you should make your decisions on the emotions by themselves, um, but I think to, we ignore the data of emotions, you know, to our own peril. Um, and the third one is ask for help. So manage your mind, learn how to regulate your emotions and be very um, intentional and forthcoming about asking for help. And I don't only mean emotional help. You can practice in lots and lots of ways. You know, if somebody says, um, can I carry, help you carry some of the things you're carrying? Let them. <laughs> it's a really powerful way to connect and to build relationship and to when people give you a compliment say thank you and sit in that savor it feel it and the fourth thing would be uh, this idea of uh, seesaw I often talk with my clients about a seesaw that you can know your uh, problem your pain uh, the struggles intimately and you can describe them int intimately and that's all the weight on one end of the seesaw but if you never, ever put any weight on the other end of the seesaw, all you know is all about your problem intimately. And you really must pay attention to the other end of the seesaw. So whether that's time out, friendship stuff, writing in your journal, learning to meditate, having a bit of extra sleep, uh, saying, I can't do that fill in shift I'm sorry that's really important self-help self-care day for me practicing gratitude learning about compassion you know there's a hundred ways but if you don't put some weight on the other end of the seesaw if you don't do some proactive positive this is how I'm growing and learning and building taking care of myself then all you have is intimate knowledge of your problem so I really encourage people to think about that that seesaw kind of balance and be very proactive about how you can can work at the other end and uh, I think I told you when we were preparing for today's podcast that I have written a book called The Thriving Doctor uh, and that's really the theme of the book so um, we're hoping it'll be released in November the editors have it at the moment and it really is about this idea of being very proactive in your own life there are massive systemic problems uh, and both need to be attended to. What we have control of in the first instance is our own self. And I know people get frustrated with that and they think, oh, well, you know, I can change the mixture of my cake, but if the oven doesn't work, the cake still won't work. Um, that is true to some extent. Um, but I just, it, people are empowered uh, and feel better when they have some autonomy in their life, adults. And you do have some autonomy about how you take care of yourself, but they're, they're hard choices. They're still there. You, you still do have a choice. This was such a beautiful episode and I learned so much. Cherie Johnson was so generous with her time and stayed a little extra. So I have some bonus material for you about coaching, 
I dig in with her about how you can find a coach, how to make sure they're reputable, finding a good fit. And I think there's so many pearls about how we can utilize coaching throughout our career to really improve our performance. Enjoy. I've met with two senior doctors who are men who have come from other countries to Australia in the last week who've um, both said to me in their own versions, um, but how does coaching help the medicine? <laughs> I think it's a really good question. So um, you've, your listeners have heard enough from the way I'm talking now to understand that the work that I'm doing in coaching with uh, my physician clients uh, is around these things that I'm that I have expertise and skill in. So how to manage emotions, how to have, build clarity of mind, how to be emotionally intelligent, um, how to bring some balance into their life. Um, and then sometimes the more immediate quandaries, like I've applied for three jobs and I've missed out every time I need to do something on my interview skills, or um, I'm trying to decide which specialty or which subspecialty to go into and I can't decide. So that will be work with them much more around their values or their belief system or what it is they hope for their life, those kinds of things. Uh, sometimes I'm working with doctor leaders, so medical directors and so on, who are having difficulties managing some of their staff. Uh, it's different to HR. We're not doing HR work, but we are working with their internal reactions. So sometimes an unconscious bias is uncovered, for instance, and they want to understand how they're going to be able to work with a particular doctor or numb or given that they've got this kind of reaction to them every time they see them. Uh, sometimes I'm working with a senior doctor who has been challenged or, or uh, there's been a review sought about some of their practice or some of the um, things that have gone wrong in their practice. And they're feeling very threatened by their colleagues questioning their ability, those kinds of things. So I think there's definitely a place for coaching in these realms. Um, the, the doctors that I work with um, certainly give a lot of very positive feedback that it's been helpful and it's changed the way they approach their medicine. And it's essentially about how they think about their medicine or how they think about their role in, in the system or how they respond to other people. I don't think that medicine or medicine medical school teaches any of that to doctors. I think we all, and, and in truth, psychology school doesn't really, university doesn't teach all of that either. There's a lot to be said for learning on the job, but learning on the job is sort of ad hoc, accidental, piecemeal, unless you intentionally do something. You know, some people go off to courses, some doctors go and do MBAs, uh, some come to coaching, some do um you know, some sort of leadership training. So I think coaching is another way for people to build those skills. And it's a, a high in accountability. So the two things that uh, coaching operate on in terms of a framework is uh, one is, is a very high trust relationship. So you're in a very, it's a highly confidential uh, off, off from the hierarchy. So whatever you explore and discuss in coaching is free from any career consequence in the sense of um, now that my boss knows that I'm, I don't like this kind of work, there's going to be some consequence. So it's a different kind of conversation. So it's very high in trust and confidentiality, and it's also very high in accountability. So sometimes doctors come for coaching and they say, I want to, I, I know what I want to do. I know what I'm trying to achieve, but I don't seem to be able to do it. I need somebody holding my hand or encouraging me or every week saying to me, so last week you were going to do blah, blah, 
you know, did you achieve it? You, last week you were going to have this difficult conversation with your colleague. Did you have it? Uh, well, no, I didn't have it. I haven't seen them. Oh, okay, so can you actually create a way? Did you book a time to see them? Um, so really holding people to account and um, encouraging them to step up to the difficult conversations, the difficult things that we might have in our lives. So I think for people who are curious or unsure about where coaching fits in the system, it's about thinking about it as another option. It's not going to be something that every doctor requires. It's not something that you need through your whole career, but it might be something that you dip in and out of at different times. And like all of these kinds of processes, um, fit is important. So you might go to leadership training and say you really hated it, you didn't like the, the trainer. Another person might go and say, oh, I got so much out of that leadership training. I learned so many things. So it depends on what our needs are. It depends on the relationship we make with the, the person I'm coaching or any coaches working with. And coaching is different to training. It's different to counselling. So it's not, people often say it's therapeutic uh, because they get time and space to do this introspective work and really challenge their own ideas and unearth their barriers and so on. So it often is therapeutic but it's not counselling. We don't dig around in the past in the same way that you might in counselling. Uh, we do sometimes to try and inform what's worked previously, but it's very future focused. It's very goal oriented. Uh, it's about activating our skills and building other skills. So uh, for instance, I'm working with a doctor at the moment. We've used a 360 uh, tool to do some assessment around uh, he's in a leadership role. So he's very curious. He's initiated that. He wants to know. Um, he did one of these assessments five years ago. He wants to see how his skills have developed or where, where, where he should put his attention next. So it's a, got a very systemic, targeted kind of process in his coaching. Um, and it's different to training in the sense that you don't come to a coach for the coach to download all their knowledge on you. You come to see the coach to explore your own territory. So one of the ways you can think about it is that the coachee, the doctor brings their content, their confusion, their ideas, uh, their speculations, um, and the coach holds the process and helps to walk them through exploring that terrain. So uh, the coach has got a bit of a map, you might say, but uh, it's the coach, the coachee that's really leading the process. It's the coachee's goals. The coachee is doing the work. It's not the coach. Uh, delivering a training package in, you know, one hour sound bites. It's uh, very different to training in that sense. The, the curriculum is brought by the doctor. I'm sure there's many listeners that would love you to be their coach, but I'm guessing with the time change, it might create some problems. Um, so if they're unable to arrange coaching with you, um, what would be some suggestions for our listeners when they go to vet a potential coach? Yeah, you've got some very, I'm very happy to coach people from, from America. That's super for me. But uh, you've got some excellent coaches in, in the US working with, with medical professionals. So I think things, you know, do your due diligence, ask questions like, you know, have you coached doctors before? There are many corporate coaches who have one or two doctors that they coach, but don't have particular understanding of the health sector. So, and that was me at the beginning, you know, I was coaching people in the corporate space too and feeling like, but it's actually health that I know well. So I think asking the, the coach, the potential coach, what's their understanding of the health 
sector. They don't need to be a doctor. There are many coaches in America who are also doctors. They don't need to be a doctor. And depending on what it is you want to develop, what your goals are, there are advantages and disadvantages in having a doctor coach. So a doctor coach um, understands the culture and medicine very well, and that might suit you or it might limit your exploration if it might hold you in the silo, so to speak. So it really depends on what you're looking for. Uh, coaching is, is an unregulated industry, but there are three professional bodies, the International Coaching Federation, where I'm a member, the Association of Coaching and the European Coaching Body. I can't actually remember the exact name. They all uh, have accreditation processes and require coaches to do uh, a significant amount of training and practical supervised work before they accredit their coaches. So I would also encourage you to ask the potential coach, are they a member of a professional association and which one? Um, because that will tell you something of the effort that they've put into understanding what coaching is. So anybody can put their shingle up tomorrow and say they're a coach. Um, they might be a sports coach. They might be just a friendly neighbour. Um, so it is worth asking those questions. And then I have a particular bias towards psychology because a lot of the um, research into coaching has been done by psychologists. Uh, and there is a significant evidence base, 25 years worth of uh, you know, serious peer-reviewed um, research into coaching. A lot of it has happened in the corporate space, not necessarily in medicine. Um, but I think psychology psychologists have driven a lot of that research. So declaring my clear bias, I think that there is some benefit in having psychologists coach. But again, it depends what you're looking at. Atoll Gawandi's got a terrific um, uh, TED talk, or it's not a TED talk, a YouTube clip about the benefits coaching has had for him in his medicine. And he describes having the coach in the theatre watching the surgery and giving real-time um, feedback about the coaching in the way a basketball coach would on the side, you know, offer coaching about the exact moves you made on the court and the way that you interacted with the other players and the, and the opposition and so on. Determining what your goals are and then asking the coach, what's their experience in that space? Have they worked with other people in that space? Um, what's their understanding of the health system more broadly? And have they done any training or are they accredited with one of the, the coaching bodies? I think would all be good, good questions to ask at the beginning. The last bit is really just around your own fit. You know, meet the coach. I always have a half hour conversation, sometimes on the phone, sometimes on Zoom, sometimes in, in previous times it would be in person. And just, you know, feel the chemistry. See if you actually trust the person. You do need high trust and you are mandating the coach to hold you to account by going into a relationship with them. So you do want to have some sense of connection to them. That is so helpful. And I have personally gone through the coaching process uh, last year, and it was a great, great experience. Honestly, the most transformative process I had gone through in my professional life. It was something I had wished I had done sooner. You know, there certainly was a cost involved, but it to me was a, a very important investments. And when we think about, you know, our careers, what is, what could be more important than investing in ourselves? So if you found any of this intriguing, I would highly encourage you to visit Sheree Johnson's website. And she has a wonderful white paper on in really, would you call it an introduction to coaching or how would you explain that to the listeners? Yeah, I think we're really trying to help doctors think through what coaching is in their context and, and why you would look to use coaching and what the benefits could be of coaching. 
for a doctor. This will be very, very helpful. And I, I hope um, it'll help our, our doctors that are just really having a hard time right now. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Andrea. I really want to send a very heartfelt uh, thanks and um, wish for, for good health uh, for all of, all, of, all of the doctors. In fact, uh, we're talking about emergency doctors today, I know. So you're really on the front line. So take good care of yourselves and take good care of each other. And please, you know, nobody expects you to be superhuman or a robot. We just want you to be well and human and, and to connect with each other and with us. Thank you for having me so much. All right, folks, that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you learned something and I hope you enjoyed. As always on this podcast, our goal is to dive deep into what it takes to perform under pressure. Nothing that we discuss here should be construed as medical advice, and all of the opinions that we discuss are our own and are not necessarily representative of any organization with which we were affiliated or for whom we work. If you want to go even deeper and get more involved, don't forget to check out our book. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure, and you can find it at emergencymind.com book. All right. Good luck out there.